Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, David A. Simon, visiting assistant professor of law at the University of Kansas School of Law and project researcher at the Honkin School of Economics. In this installment of the podcast, which we have called Ex Cathedra, we'll be taking a step back to talk to senior scholars about scholarship. We're interested in how senior scholars entered the academy, developed their interests, and found their voice. To discuss the topic today, my guest is Dr. Leslie C. Griffin, the William S. Boyd Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law. Professor Griffin teaches constitutional law and is known for her interdisciplinary work in law and religion. She holds a PhD in religious studies from Yale University and a JD from the Stanford Law School. She's the author of two case books. The first is Law and Religion, Cases and Materials, and the second is Practicing Bioethics Law, which she co-authored with Joan Krauss, the Dan K. Moore Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law. Professor Griffin, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Well, thanks for asking me to speak with you. Yeah, we're, we're happy to have you. And we'd like to start off by having you talk about how you became interested in legal academia and what your path was like to your your current position. Well, thank you. Well, I started uh, after I was an undergraduate by doing that PhD in religious studies. And I think what characterizes my career is that I start with an interest in ideas. I mean, that's a very academic way to look at it, but you think, oh, there are certain ideas that we're interested in. Now, studying ideas in religious studies can be hard because there has been and continues to be a debate within religion, right? Do you have to be a member of a religion to really understand it and write about it? Or can you write about it more academically? And the the kind of the in-system approach is called theology, and the external is called religious studies. And so that set me up into this idea that, oh, I really wanted to talk about ideas, and especially ethical ideas. But there's always been this challenge that when you start in religion, often you're focused on truth. That's what people in religion are often interested about, and also in getting universal ideas. And so it's very tough to struggle through and think, oh, uh, what can I say about religion that's interesting and true, and yet not true in a committed sense, right? True in an academic sense. And so that's how I started my career. And I worked on ideas that were of interest to me as a woman in religion. And I kept looking for the academic ideas or truthful ideas that would express what I was interested in. Uh, But they weren't always the same as what the religions taught. And so that taught me to be a critical scholar early on. And eventually that's what got me interested in law school, because it seemed to me that law was the place where all these issues about morality were really being resolved. So your interest in law was driven by practical considerations. And when you got to law school, did you find that the academic interests you have were amenable to legal analysis, that what you thought was going on in the classroom or in the courtroom was was actually happening there? Well, the, the great thing is that law was a great place for me to pursue my interest in equality, which is something that I'm fundamentally interested in. Um, and I'm, I'm very committed to people's rights. It started with women's rights. I learned from my own experience to understand gay and lesbian rights and racial rights much better because of what I had experienced as a woman. And so it's funny, I learned as a lawyer that there are practical ways that lawyers can work 
for human rights, right? Religion scholars sometimes try to do it in another way. They try to do it by reforming their religion. Lawyers look to change the law. And so, it, but, but there are two different ways of looking at things. It's funny, I was telling my tort students yesterday that in torts, you can't just know the rule, you have to know the facts. And that's been an interesting thing for me to learn about writing good briefs or bringing good law cases is to say, well, law is really fact dependent in a way that other academic disciplines aren't, right? A good lawyer has to know how to look at the rule and look at the facts and talk about both. And so that's what I've tried to do in some of my writings. Now, as I said at the beginning, I was and am a religion scholar. And so it was interesting to try to combine a, a kind of fact and result-oriented approach that you get in law with sometimes what's a much more theoretical, truth-based approach. In religion, often you have religious experts who say, well, we're the expert because we run our religion. And so it's hard sometimes as a religion scholar to say, well, there's other things that we, we lawyers learn to think about that other academics don't always see. And that's how the academic theories that you choose affect people's lives. And I think that is the good thing about being a law professor is that if you're a good lawyer, you should always have your eye not only on what the rule is, but on how the rule that the courts have chosen protect or don't protect people's rights. And as you know, we have big debates in the United States just now about how much human rights should be protected in the law. Sometimes the law does a good job and sometimes it doesn't. So it sounds like when you went to law school, you had a developed interest already. And were you planning on going into academia to pursue these ideas and this activism? Or did you consider doing something else? I mean, when I first went to law school, I thought that I would never be an academic again. I thought, oh, I'll go and be a real lawyer. And it's interesting. I mean, I had had a great career in religion. I, you know, I have that Yale PhD and I went back and was teaching at my alma mater, the University of Notre Dame in their theology department. And I had great friends and great support from my colleagues there. And so I had learned a lot about that system and respected it, but thought that that world wasn't going to work for me. And so I thought, oh, I'll just go and be a lawyer. And so I went to law school and I worked in a few law firms and I thought about and I was on my judicial clerkship. And it was when I was on my uh, clerkship on the Ninth Circuit when I thought, well, it's two different tasks to write projects together with others and to write your own academic work. And so I went on a fellowship right after the clerkship. And the fellowship persuaded me that I enjoyed academic work enough that I wanted to get back into it. And so after the fellowship, I went and started my law teaching career. So unlike some people, I am a very academic lawyer because, as I said at the very beginning, my academic career has, has been about ideas. And sometimes very abstract, high-level ideas. That's why, as a lawyer, I try to combine those with the reality of what works on the ground. But I think it's, it can be a hard balance to pull those things together, to be theoretically smart and yet aware of what your research says about how people should be treated. Could you say a little bit more about the fellowship that you did? Um, currently, 
there's some more extensive discussion about fellowships online and what they provide for aspiring scholars. And they're very directed at people who are trying to break into the legal academy. Could you say more about what your fellowship was like and maybe why it persuaded you to continue to pursue legal academia? Well, I've been very lucky. I've had great professors and great mentors. And while I was at Stanford, I worked with Professor Kathleen Sullivan. And she told me and recommended me to this Harvard program in ethics and the professions. And I guess I should emphasize that ethics has always been at the core of my work. And so I said to her, well, I'm not sure if I want to go practice law or go back into academic work. And I talked to her about the projects I had, which were about what role religion should play in influencing people's ethical choices. And that was something that lawyers had been writing about, but not so much. I mean, when I was doing this back in the early 90s, people were talking about law and religion, although I think now we talk more and more people are writing in law and religion than talking about law and religion. And so there was this Harvard program in ethics and the professions, which brought and still continues to bring together people of different backgrounds and fields to talk about ethics. And so, uh, and so there I was trying to figure out how I could combine ethical theory and law, because often, you know, in law, sometimes people, uh, right, they look back to the Watergate era and they say, oh, do lawyers ever have any ethics? And so lawyers are always struggling with what it means to be an ethical lawyer. But I think in general, the fellowship was a, was a, it was a, it was a great thing and a great experience because it made me see my perspective through new eyes. And it, and I'm very fortunate. It was the year that John Rawls had just written the book, political liberalism. And I had read the book. And of course, way back in graduate school, I had read his theory of justice, but because I was at Harvard, he was invited to come over and speak to us about his book. And we were allowed to ask questions about the book. And I think when, when you talked about what fellowships do, for me, the fellowship was a huge way to talk to people in different fields, and especially in the case of Rawls, to get to meet somebody who had written about something that was of great interest to me. Um, political liberalism tries to say how people from different religions can work together. And so John Rawls has a theory of public reasons which I must admit has not been very popular among some religious writers because they think he takes religion out of the question. I think he handles the question in a good way, but part of what the fellowship did for me is it got me to meet not only the people in the fellowship, but to have this meeting with Professor John Rawls. And after that, he was happy to answer my questions. And, uh, and by coincidence, two years later, he came to the university at where I was working. And so I felt very privileged to meet somebody who was such a top scholar, but he was a top scholar who would take questions from anyone. When, I, when he came to lunch that day, one of the things I realized is something that I'd seen in some of my religion scholars as well. And that is whatever question you asked him, he could answer. And part of that was he had read so many things and thought through so many ideas. And to me, that really is a goal of a true scholar is to say, do I really understand what's going on? Have I been attentive to enough perspectives? 
And the great thing about Rawls was he had his own perspective, but he had reckoned with everybody else's. And so um, it was a real model for me to speak with him and learn from him. And then he read the essay that I wrote many years ago about Rawlsian liberals and gave me his comments on it. And so I feel like for people who are thinking of being academics, you say, well, what can a fellowship do? A fellowship can really help you focus on your ideas, get more content on them, and then meet the people that could help you go farther with them. Yeah. So from what you described, it sounds like the relationships you built were either in law school or at the fellowship were important parts of your decision process to go into teaching and also important parts of your writing process. So could you say a little bit more about how you developed those relationships? You you mentioned Kathleen Sullivan when you were in law school. If someone's thinking about going into the legal academy, how might they try to build a relationship with a professor such that they can have somebody to rely on for advice and um, mentorship and also how to build relationships with people outside of your school. Could you talk about those two things? So I do think that, um, I mean, I said from the beginning that I'm interested in ideas and it's very lucky if you can find somebody, not only who's working in your area, but you're especially lucky if you can find somebody who's working on the topic that you're most interested in. And that happened to me. I mean, it did happen to me when I was a professor at Notre Dame. So when I was a professor at Notre Dame, the um, one of my colleagues that I'd known about from graduate school, so one of the colleagues there came to be a professor at Notre Dame. And he had written all these books. I mean, the books were called Notes on Moral Theology, where he reviewed what literature was. And so because I had worked with him, I'd learned a lot about how he did his work. So much so that years later, when I went to the library where he used to work, I could talk about his work with people. And so it was the same thing with Rawls and with Kathleen Sullivan. Now, the first thing I would tell people, and I do tell my students this, is you can't be too shy You've got to be willing to um, go up to people and introduce yourself. I tell them, you know, don't be afraid to go to your professor's office hours because I have tutors in my class here, too. I say, don't be afraid that you can only go to the tutors. The better you get to know your professors and the better they get to know you, the better it can be for you in the long run. So instead of just being somebody who sits in class and answers questions, you can come to know students more. And so... Um, for students, even when they need recommendation letters for all their different jobs and clerkships, the better I know somebody, then that's good. And so I think, well, in a way, you do have to be bold and find a way to meet people. It could be that good scholars are friends of friends of yours, or it might be that you have to write a letter to someone directly. And um, um, and usually it is good to be prepared, right? You think, well, you should know why you want to meet this person. So be careful in developing your interests, finding the people that you're interested in, and then don't be afraid to contact them. You could contact them to say you like their work or you had questions about their work or you were writing about their work or just that you wanted more general information about why they became scholars and what took them to become scholars. I mean, I have over the years talked to many people about what their scholarly life is like. 
And that's part of what you can do if you use your conventions well and meet people. I mean, right, technically as academics, we have lots of opportunities to meet people because we have different conventions, we have colleagues and we have colleagues at other schools. And so I think you just got to be open about trying to learn to meet the people that you want to be. Now, it could be the people that have opposite ideas from you. Um, um, that's happened to me. I was, um, I was book review editor for a book review for a number of years, and that was great. I had to find people to review all the books we were interested in, and that expanded my understanding of what was going on because I was looking for people who did um, certain kinds of work all the time. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. The number one thing that I took away from that is you got to put yourself out there. If you don't try to build the relationships, they just aren't going to happen. And um, as part of that, being prepared, I think, is very good advice as well. You want to know why you're talking with someone. And um, it doesn't have to be artificial, but you want to have an idea of whether your interests align. So I think that's really helpful advice. Especially with senior people. I mean, I have worked with senior people, but it makes it a lot easier if you've read about them, you know about them, and you're prepared, right? You 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 don't want to waste people's time. You want to go in with a real reason to meet them and something to contribute. So I think it's always important to pay attention to what people are doing and what they've written, especially when you want to meet them. And, and as you get more senior, I mean, that's true about meeting junior people as well. Um, to me, I do follow people's ideas, which a lot of which, yeah, you can find online. I like that twist. Now we're putting some of the onus on senior people. That's good. Um, but you mentioned attentiveness to different perspectives and a willingness to engage with those. So could you talk a little bit about how you do that now when you're looking at scholarship, the kinds of things that, the kinds of perspectives that you find interesting or engaging and how that influences you when you write or think about things? Well, it's funny, I do have a lot of favoritism toward the younger scholars, but I think that's because I I try to look to the future and not the past. Um, and and that that is different from a lot of the study of religion, where often you're looking to a past tradition to try to guide you into the future. I prefer to look to the future, and I feel like it's many of the young scholars who are taking us there. So I look for ideas and writings that express where I think I want to go. Now, it's probably true that I know better, right? In a way, I know better what I believe now than I did 20 years ago. And so I can see what stands out in people writing. And so it's usually people who are committed to rights and committed to a future in which people really have equal rights that I can, if, if that comes across in somebody's writings, then I'm really interested. And it, if it comes across in a clear way, then I'm even more interested. And so I like the idea that the young people are, I think, ready for a different world than the one that we have right now. And so I look to them to see where they want to go, because sometimes I learn from them where they want to go. I mean, many of them were brought up in a completely different situation, especially for women than I was brought up in. And it's kind of interesting to see what they expect their future will have and what they'll be able to do with it. Yeah, that's great. Um, since you do inter interdisciplinary work, 
And there are a lot of scholars now with PhDs in cognate disciplines or totally unrelated disciplines. Could you talk about how to do that work, what you think is a productive way that utilizes you know, both specialties you've been trained in? I mean, I think the most important thing is to try to be honest to most sources. I mean, I have tried that in my work in law and religion, and that is, I do take seriously the academic study of religion, which does have some things both good and bad to say about religion. Um, that's an interesting point. Sometimes people aren't willing to say to hear people say negative as well as positive things about religion. To me, that's part of the field of the academic study of religion is to be able to look at what's happened in all fields, assess them honestly and academically, which means going back to this idea of, well, I want to do the best I can to get what's useful and true out of these fields. And so I feel like what I learned from studying religious studies was that religion can be studied as an academic field, just like other fields. And that's what I tried to work into my casebook, right? To try to get people to understand that religion is not just something faith-based. It's something that we can and should study academically. And people sometimes accept that and, and sometimes don't. I think that's part of the interaction of uh, the two fields that's art. I think people might be more willing to say, oh, economics and law work together than, the, than they would be to say, oh, religious studies, right? Not, not the committed study of religion, but really the academic study of religion has a lot to teach us about what works well for people and what religious liberty really is. Do you ever find or think that there's a tension between your specialty in religious studies and legal scholarship and what I what I'm I'm thinking about generally here but also specifically about the idea that you mentioned at the beginning religious studies is about truth and law is not always about truth. So when you're writing do you find that this tension causes problems? And then even if it does not, do you find a tension between what's expected from each discipline when you're writing? So writing for a religious studies audience versus writing for a legal audience. I wonder if you could talk about that. I mean, that's a great question because I think if, if you come out of religious studies really committed to truth and even universal arguments, it really could be that it takes a while to appreciate the broad diversity of ideas that people have. And I think that's one way in which law has been good for me, right? It's been a reminder that there are numerous but accurate and authentic perspectives on life. And if I'm really going to learn and hope I have learned as a lawyer, it's to have learned how to appreciate stories that aren't anything like my own. And I'm not sure I would have learned that as well in religious studies as I learned it in law, where I think people are often encouraged to write different perspectives. And if you look at the law review articles, you say, well, people do have a number of different perspectives and they come across very strongly. And so I think one of our goals now is in looking at the future and not the past is to really try to appreciate the unique 
voices that people bring to their field. I think that that was harder in the beginning, right? When I came out as a PhD, it was always that you were trying to write something for that everybody could agree with. And now I think, well, I've learned that in a, in a way we can't do that. All we can express in a way is part of what our experience is. And so I feel like there's a lot of experience in the United States that we might not even have, have heard yet. Um, um, I'm not sure that we really heard the lessons and experience of the poor people um, who get only rational basis scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause, but who I think um, aren't always heard. Okay, that's um, that's very good. And uh, I wonder if we could just turn now to a separate subject, which is teaching. And I think you'll have some interesting perspectives on this subject because uh, you were teaching in religious studies before you went to law school. And I wonder if you could say something about um, how you developed your teaching skills and how you found teaching to be different in the undergraduate setting versus the law school setting. You know, I think one thing I have learned over the years about teaching is it really is important to develop a style that matches the teacher, which means that teachers can be very different. I had I felt I had to learn that because uh, um, teachers do different things and learn different things. Now, when I was a theology professor, sometimes I would have two or three sections of the same class in a row. And so one good thing I learned is that your class is dependent on your students. It's not just about you. And so every class is different because every class has a group of different students. But to every group of different students, my own perspective is that the more students participate, the more they learn. And so I'm a person who calls on people on call. I mean, everybody is on call in my classes all the time because I want them to be in the classroom always ready to go, which I think they could tell you could be tough, um, tougher than being called on occasionally. So I think that what I've learned is the best system for me to use is one where instead of lecturing at people, I mean, I do some lecture, but I feel like there's more learning if we're engaged with one another and so that students are answering questions or asking questions and staying engaged. And I, so I think I probably learned that more, although I have to say I'm the kind of person who hated to be called on in, cl in class because I'm an introvert. And I think it's because I know that, yeah, I hated to be called on in class, but when I had to keep answering questions and being attuned to what was going on in every class, I learned more in a way that stayed with me. And so that's what I've tried to develop in my teaching style, right? A way of calling on students. And I do try to pick, I get background on the students the first day. I have them fill out index cards with information about them. And I try to link them to certain themes. If I have a student from New York, he or she will usually get the New York cases and so forth. I try to do things that bring them in as the individuals they are, hoping that if I keep them alert and answering questions, that they'll learn more. Um, that in a way, going to class is like going to a gym. You've got to get there and keep working out as hard as it is on your muscles. And um, I think I keep them working out by calling on them, sometimes giving them problems to work on, 
and then letting them ask questions, which again, sometimes they're shy about asking the questions, but feeling like I want them to participate. Keeping students engaged sounds like an important part of teaching. And now that you've had so much experience teaching, I wonder if we could conclude by you discussing what some of the most challenging and rewarding aspects of teaching have been for you. I mean, I think it is challenging to be demanding and respectful. I mean, I know at the beginning of my career, sometimes would think I'm too hard and some students still think I'm too hard, but it's, it, it, there are different ways to challenge people to work hard while showing them that, that you're challenging them because you respect them and their intelligence. I think it's important to convey a positive message. I've learned that in a lot of places in life, that people learn better, as I learn better, if I'm treated in a positive way. So even if you get the wrong answer, it shouldn't be viewed as a negative. And so I think that's really an essence of trying to catch how do you make your class intellectually demanding and something where people are always, t- I mean, my students would tell you that they're usually tense in my class because they don't know when they're going to be called on. But I, I want them to learn that it's how I learn as well. Like we all learn better when we're on and ready and thinking about what's going on, even though that's hard. And so I hope to convey the message that you can be intellectually rigorous and respectful of human dignity at the same time. It's a hard balance to strike, but I'd like, I try to strike it. That sounds like a good philosophy to me. And uh, we've covered a lot of interesting ground today. And I want to thank you very much for, for joining us on the program. Well, thank you for inviting me to speak with you. Okay. Thanks, Professor Griffin.